Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. We are where we are with the uh, with the pandemic and what it's caused and what it's wrought and what has happened politically. Yves Giroux is the parliamentary budget officer. And Mr. Giroux is critical because only four hours of MP debate was scheduled over the spending of at least $150 billion by the Trudeau government in pandemic relief, and I share that concern. Also, Mr. Giroux this week formally cited uh, Federal Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna for missing details on thousands of subsidized public works projects of more than 52,000 projects claimed. Analysts could find addresses and details for only 32,500 66 that received funding this according to blacklock's reporter and uh, the budget officer says the federal debt listen to this could exceed a trillion dollars by the end of the fiscal and the annual deficit could top 256 billion dollars now it's all pandemic related but not so long ago we were very much concerned about the deficit possibly reaching 20 or 22 billion dollars Yves Giroux, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Giroux, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. And in a sentence or two, what is your job, actually, as Parliamentary Budget Officer? Well, my job is to look at the the, um, finances of the government and the state of the economy and provide analysis that is unbiased and nonpartisan to parliamentarians and to Canadians. So that includes... MPs as well as senators, regardless of their party affiliation. Okay. Uh, I admire the work you do, by the way. I, I think that you provide us with a lot of information that we require. By us, I mean taxpayers who ultimately do uh, to foot the bill. Now, you have concerns that members of parliament only debated the federal government pandemic spending for four hours earlier in the week, and the total was, I believe, in the range of $150 billion, although not everything was included, including the wage subsidy program for individual Canadians or the loan program for small and medium-sized businesses. Would you speak to your concerns about this, please? Sure. So uh, with uh, due to the new rule that has been put in place since the, uh, the start of the pandemic, uh, regular sittings of the House of Commons have been suspended. So as a result... When the government is seeking funding, and they seek funding through uh, supplementary estimates, main estimates, and then supplementary estimates, so tabled, the government tabled the supplementary estimates, seeking funding for $87 billion, and, and they tabled that in the House, debated that for four short hours on Wednesday, June 17th, and normally uh, MPs would have had the opportunity to summon um, witnesses, question public servants and ministers for more than four hours, and they would have had the benefit of longer debates in a smaller setting, in a committee. And given that the government is in a minority situation, um, MPs uh, could have proposed amendments or could have voted down the, the, um, the supplementary estimates and suggested amendments, as I said. Uh, but given that they, uh, they suspended the rules and they had accelerated and reduced debates, accelerated procedures, MPs were only allowed to vote for a maximum or debate for a maximum of four hours in a committee of the whole. So that means all MPs, and that included a fair number of liberals who uh, understandably were not very critical of the supplementary estimates. 
And uh, as a result of a motion that had been passed a couple of weeks prior to that, uh, there was no amendment possible. So the MPs were faced with a choice of either approving the supplementary estimates as they were or rejecting them, which would have meant we would be going to the polls in a couple of weeks. Yeah. So to me, it's, it's not surprising that they approved the supplementary estimates. Yeah. To, to me, this sounds fundamentally dangerous to, 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 to the cornerstones of democracy. It is uh, without precedent, in, in my opinion, or, or at least as, I, as far as I know. And it is a bit surprising, given that the current government is in a minority situation. But thanks to the pandemic... It can behave and it can rule as if it was, uh, it, it had the benefit of a significant majority. And to me, that's a bit surprising. Uh, it's understandable, it was understandable uh, in March when we were faced with uh, unprecedented events. We really had no idea what was awaiting us uh, around the corner. But now that we're in June, uh, we have adjusted and we can deal with the pandemic. We can deal with it. Not more easily, but at least we we got we got used to that. And when we see people working in grocery stores and working in coffee shops and returning to work generally, uh, I, I think there could have been a bit more debate by parliamentarians. But it's it was ultimately their choice. Ultimately, their choice, and then ultimately it will be our choice. But it does really, really concern me that something as fundamental as debating parliament parliamentary debate on the spending of Canadian taxpayers' money uh, is given such short shrift of four hours. That is deeply concerning. Now, our, our deficit this year could top $260 billion. Am I right about that? And our national debt could exceed a trillion dollars? That's quite possible. Um, as a result of the, the sharp economic slowdown and the, uh, the very sharp increase in spending to support businesses and Canadians. Um, government revenues have dipped by $62 billion for the, the, the year, we expect. And uh, as of June 12, uh, expenditures uh, were up as a result of the pandemic by almost $170 billion. And that was before the Prime Minister announced an eight-week eight extension to the CERB. So it's, uh, it's very likely that the deficit will top $256 billion was our last estimate, but the extension of the CERB will add to that. And uh, so it would not be surprising that the deficit will be anywhere between 260 and $300 billion. Wow. And that is before any stimulus measures that the government will probably want to, to announce and put in place to kickstart the economy once the, the, the worst of the pandemic is behind us. Mr. Giroud, how do we deal with a massive deficit and a trillion-dollar national debt? How do we pay for this? Because the provinces have debts as well, and 49% of Canadians' polling has told us are within $200 not being able to pay their monthly bills. How do we deal with a, a national debt of a trillion dollars and a deficit that may approach $300 billion. Well, that's, that's a very good question, and it's also a worrying concept when we think about the level of debt that we collectively have. So we have to keep in mind that a debt, a government debt, does not necessarily have to be repaid like a mortgage over a 25- or 40-year horizon. 
the government has a, an infinite lifespan, so to speak. So uh, we can afford a high level of debt like that as long as it stops growing at some point and some point in the near future. So a deficit like the one we will have this year is not the end of the world as long as it is for one year and not for multiple years. So the government can afford to support Canadians and businesses for a year, but the important point is that the measures that it has put in place have to be temporary and they should not be extended well into the future. Uh, same thing goes with uh, with uh, the the deficit. So we can afford, so to speak, a deficit of that magnitude because it was indeed necessary to support Canadians, I think. But the 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 trap will be at one point do we pull the plug on these programs because the yeah. pressure will be tremendous on politicians to keep paying people two thousand dollars a month when they're unemployed. So at one point, politicians will need to stop these programs and go back to the regular support programs such as employment insurance. And that would be difficult because politicians want to be reelected. And right now, uh, an election is always a potential, a real possibility with a minority situation. Yeah. I have about a minute left, uh, Mr. Giroux. There's a lot of talk about, we've talked about it on this program, a guaranteed income for everyone. And the number $30,000 has been tossed around as, you know, what we, we maybe should be doing. Do we have the wherewithal to create the dynamic of a guaranteed income for every citizen of this country? Well, at that, at that level of guaranteed income for everybody, the answer is clearly no. Uh, but I'll have a report out in a couple of days, maybe two weeks maximum, on, on that question, how much it would cost to instigate a guaranteed minimum income. And the question was asked by a parliamentarian. And as a result of that question, very topical. It's been raised by many stakeholders, many parliamentarians as well. Uh, we will be releasing a report. And the, the thinking is that we have CERB, which is almost a guaranteed annual income. So if, there's, if there ever was a time that was good to implement a guaranteed income, now is probably a good time. Uh, but uh, without revealing the numbers, I can tell you it's going to be very, very expensive. If, well, it would be if ever governments were to move ahead with that. But okay. when they see the price tag, I don't think they will want to move ahead. Well, I hope you'll come back and join us after you release the report. It would be a pleasure. I'm just waiting for an invitation. You know how to reach me. I, I will definitely call you. Thank you so much for the time today. It's been a real pleasure. Yves Giroux is the Parliamentary Budget Officer. Joining us on the Roy Green Show. The Prime Minister, Mr. Trudeau's response to China charging Canadians Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor with spying was he's disappointed. And there's almost a 100% guarantee of a conviction and up to 10 years in prison, from what I understand, as far as the Chinese justice system working is concerned. And China, of course, is retaliating against British Columbia's Supreme Court, not setting aside a U.S. extradition request for Huawei Chief Operating Officer Meng Wanzhou. Um, China continues its series of threats against Canada. And so what would the most effective and respected by Beijing approach from Canada and Prime Minister Trudeau be? Uh, Guy Shenchak is the former Canadian ambassador to China, 2012 to 2016. He joins us 
on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Ambassador, I imagine you're not surprised at all at the charges laid against the two Michaels. No, uh, unfortunately, I think it was something that uh, was expected. And I think that, the, as you pointed out, uh, the Chinese waited to see uh, what would be the decision of Justice Holmes on the uh, uh, extradition requests. Uh, and once that uh, came out, they understood that this process was going to drag on for years, and they decided to up the NT by... Uh, announcing that the two, uh, Michael, will be uh, put on trial. And, and we know, of course, that this won't be a fair trial because their uh, lawyers won't have access to the evidence because it uh, supposedly involves uh, state secret. And uh, in the uh, Chinese system, uh, once you are formally charged, you are found guilty 99.9% of the time. And so that means uh, for sure that... Uh, it, it has become a lot more difficult uh, to extract our two Canadians from there, and we have to brace ourselves uh, for them to be there for uh, a very long period. What are Canada's options? Uh, Mr. Trudeau said Canada is using the, quote, appropriate tactics and actions to assure the return to Canada of uh, the two Michaels. What are the options? Do we have any? Well, I think that uh, first we have to uh, take stock of... Uh, uh, what has been achieved uh, a year and a half after uh, the two Michaels have been uh, detained. And I, and I would argue that the only part of the strategy that has worked uh, has been to uh, uh, seek support from our uh, allies. And uh, I, I think this took uh, the Chinese by surprise. They were not expecting that uh, uh, they would be demarched by other countries uh, and asked to free up the uh, the two Canadians, and I think they realize that uh, this has uh, tarnished their uh, reputation. But apart from that, uh, you know, uh, I think it's uh, China that has been the winner because they have forced Canada to exercise uh, self-censorship. Uh, we have expressed only mild criticism on what's happening in uh, Xinjiang, where over one million Uyghur have been uh, detained. Uh, we have not been too critical about uh, uh, encroachment on Hong Kong and the non-respect for the uh, one country, two systems. Uh, we have not uh, criticized China for its uh, mishandling of the uh, COVID-19 uh, pandemic. And so, uh, on, and on top of that, well, last year, our exports went down by $4.5 billion. Uh, for the first three months of this year, they are down by 16%. And so I would say it's time to uh, have another look and to adopt a, a much uh, firmer tone uh, to, to, uh, to try to show to China that we won't take this uh, uh, lying down. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, what is life like for Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor in custody in China? What will life be like for them when they're imprisoned? Yeah. Well, uh, <clears throat> you, you have to just to... Uh, to outline what they have been through. For the first six months uh, during the interrogation phase, they were kept in, uh, uh, in a room with no uh, daylight, and, and the lights were on uh, all the time. There were always uh, two minders in the room. They had at least six hours of uh, interrogation uh, every day. Uh, they had to sign uh, the verbatim of the previous day uh, interrogation at the end of each day. And... Uh, uh, it, it, it's very easy to become disoriented uh, during that period. After that, 
they were moved to uh, what I would uh, describe as a regular jail. We know that uh, Michael Spaver is detained in the city of Dandong, which is on the border with uh, North Korea. It's the same place, in fact, uh, where um, uh, Kevin Garrett was detained uh, from 2014 to uh, 2016. Mm-hmm. when he was uh, sentenced and uh, we were able to negotiate. And I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we have about 45 seconds left for the for your answer. And, and so I think that uh, it's very tough for them. Uh, it's slightly uh, less bad for um, Michael Covey because there's, he, there's only one other prisoner. Michael Spaver is with 19 other people. Wow. Lights are on all the time, uh, minimal uh, uh, f- facilities, uh, they are allowed to go out for 20 minutes per day, so it's very tough for them. All right. Ambassador Saint-Jacques, thank you so much uh, for joining us on the, on the program, and uh, we'll ask you to come back. Thank you for the time today. Thank you very much. All the very best. Ambassador uh, Saint-Jacques, Guy Saint-Jacques, former ambassador to China, he was criticized, by the way, by the Prime Minister's office last year because he wasn't just pushing forward the message of uh, the Liberal government about China. Mr. Saint-Jacques provided his own interpretations, as he should. Major story, huge story that affects each and every one of us in this country, believe it, is what's happening to small business in Canada. And we've talked with Dan Kelly, the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, representing small and medium-sized businesses across this country, for several months, and very specifically and in a very detailed manner about how small businesses have been affected and continue to be affected by the pandemic, the closure of their businesses, the loss of income, and then most recently, well, I say that uh, advisedly, it's not exactly recent, it's been going on for a couple of months now, is the challenges that the small business owners have in paying rent. And um, so a rent assistance program was put in place, but the small business owner, as you know if you've been listening to the program, may not apply to the government for rent assistance. The landlord has to do that. Many landlords aren't, and there are caveats for landlords as well. There's a lot going on. And an open letter to Federal Minister of Finance Bill Morneau from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business was sent earlier in the week calling on the federal government to put into action the Canada Emergency Commercial Rent Assistance Program and expand the Canada Emergency Business Account, SEBA. And this after Mr. Morneau announced a delay in the launch of the expanded SEBA on Thursday. As CFIB's concern is, delay will cause significant numbers of Canadian small business failures. Dan Kelly, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, is back with us. Dan, thank you for coming on the program. And how would you describe the reality for small business owners across Canada right now? Well, look, it's it's still very, very grave, uh, extremely tough to be uh, open these days. Uh, virtually nobody is making any money or, or even close to returning to profitability. Um, the, there are some bright signs, of course, in the economy. As more businesses begin to open, we get permission from governments to reopen. Uh, currently, we have about 50% of, uh, of Canada's businesses. It was, a, it was a big week. In fact, we just passed half of the small business community now being fully open once again. Um, but, Roy, that <laughs> the fact that they're fully open does not mean that the business is actually doing sale, is, is, is having sales anywhere close to normal, only 17% of small firms have sales that are anywhere close to their normal levels across Canada, and, and that, of course, is a, is a pretty big hill for them to, to, to still climb. 
Yeah. And a significant percentage, perhaps a majority of small business owners, small and medium-sized business owners, Dan, if I understand it correctly, are not able to project really whether they'll be able to stay in business. This is just it. Uh, there's, <laughs> there are many. Even though they may be open now. That's just it. Uh, there, are, Look, people are trying to reopen their doors to salvage their businesses as best they can to, to try to see if they can get back to, to where they were prior to the pandemic. Uh, but there's all sorts of issues facing them. Some of them are struggling to, to, to get that their staff back that they, they unfortunately were forced to lay off in some circles. Others are dealing with huge new cost pressures to uh, ensure that they have proper sanitation procedures, personal protective equipment in their businesses. Some, of course, are deeply worried about consumers returning and whether they're ever going to see the numbers that they need to, to, to make the business work. I mean, if, you're, if your restaurant's allowed to open but at 50% capacity, you may have just been scraping by at 100% capacity. Now at 50%, that's a, that's a license to lose money every single month that, they're, that you're open. So for some, they, they may need, you know, they're allowed to reopen, but it may not be at all practical for them to reopen anytime soon. And you and I have spoken about this many times, but it bears repeating the small business is the number one employer in this country. And I believe you said the percentage of, uh, of, uh, of employment that small business provides across Canada is about 60%. 60% in small and medium-sized businesses, absolutely. And half of the Canada's economy, GDP, is from small and medium-sized companies. So they're major contributors to our local economies. So... Explain to us, please, what exactly, what the impact is on the small business owner or the medium-sized business owner who is trying to reestablish momentum for his or her business, the impact of uh, Mr. Morneau's statement on Thursday. Yeah, look, there, there are, I mean, to be fair, there are some really good government programs, and we complimented the federal government for, for delivering on a few of them. Uh, the Canada wage, emergency wage subsidy was a was a solid program. Came way too late, but but a solid program nonetheless. Uh, the the Canada emergency business account certainly helped a ton of of small businesses, my members, uh, to to keep their doors open. And we were happy that the government, the federal government, stepped to the table because the provinces weren't in providing some support for commercial rent. But this week there have been a few things happen that that worry us. One. There was to be an expansion, as you noted at, your, at, at the intro, uh, that uh, to the Canada Emergency Business Account. There are tons of businesses that, as valuable as these programs are, are slipping through the cracks. Uh, right now, the group that was supposed to be able to access CBA, the Emergency Business Account, the loan program, were businesses that pay themselves with dividends. They don't perhaps have a payroll at all. They may employ contractors or companies like salons that may rent chairs to other self-employed people. And all of those companies, unfortunately, have not been able to access this incredibly important $40,000 interest-free loan. The government a month ago promised to allow that to happen. The prime minister, in fact, promised that it would be Friday of this week after about a month delay in making it happen. And then, of course, Minister Morneau on Thursday night admitted that the program was not going to launch on Friday, and we're worried that it's not. It's going to be at least another week before businesses get this lifeline. And I guess, for me, the word emergency is in the name of the program. Uh, it's not the Canada eventual business account. It's the Canada emergency yeah. business account. Yeah. It's sure not feeling like they're delivering this in an emergency. Can't accept any setbacks for the for the for the small and medium sized business owner who is hanging on and hoping to be able to project 
a return to some degree of profitability and ability to continue to do business. They cannot, they cannot absorb uh, negatives and setbacks at this point. The government has the responsibility. Since they've taken on the responsibility, they now have the responsibility to stay within the schedules they promise of their business. Carol's calling us from London, Ontario. Carol, I understand from uh, from from the studio crew that your business actually has closed. That's correct, Roy. Yes, it closed and at a huge loss financially to uh, myself and my husband, uh, unfortunately. And when people say, well, was the government not able to help you? Well, uh, what, what I say is, well, uh, to take on more debt is not a solution. <laughs> and uh, it, it's just an impossibility for us. And we have a friend who's in a worse scenario where she just signed, uh, prior to COVID, a five-year deal, uh, a lease, a five-year lease. And had to close and now she's on the hook she had to close permanently and she's on the hook for one year because we were able to talk her landlord down to a one-year term instead of five but she has to pay fifty thousand dollars for one year's lease and she can't even open in that time because it's uh, a school so there's so many people we're not hearing from with regards to small business owners and it's just heartbreaking. I, I keep looking, searching on the Internet for people who have stories that are similar to ours. And I've lost over $100,000 because of all this. And it's a devastating scenario. I'm not a wealthy person, so I have to start over. So bring Dan Kelly into this conversation. Dan, that sound familiar to you? Oh, sadly, all too familiar. We've had... Uh, 20, I think 27,000 calls to CFIB's business helpline over the last couple of months, over the last three months during the pandemic. And so many of them are stories from business owners who have got everything on the line. And look, COVID has affected everybody, including employees, very deeply. Um, but when a business owner, when a business fails, the, the owner doesn't start at zero and then just go and look for another job. As the caller just noted, uh, business owners start deeply in the hole. Their, often their mortgage is attached to their business. And so uh, they start so far in debt because they have had to take personal credit out to, in order to, to get the business started. So it's, a, it's an extra heavy burden on the, the business owner. And I don't think that that gets appreciated by governments, by, by the general public either. Carol, was there uh, um, assistance available to you? Uh, because you said you didn't want to get into debt further. Was there assistance, or were you one of the businesses that sort of slipped through the cracks? Well, I would say we slipped through the cracks. We didn't qualify. And what? And I'm sorry, what was your business, if, if I may ask? It was a, a pizza store. Okay. Pizzas. To me, pizza is an essential service, but that's just me. Um, well, it, it was, technically. Yeah. But Nobody was nobody was buying. Nobody was buying. Yeah. Nobody was buying. Yeah. Yeah. Many restaurant owners told us that their, you know, yes, takeout and delivery was certainly helpful for some types of businesses. A little bit easier to do. Some types of restaurants easier to do than others. But many said that they were making, you know, ten to twenty, maybe thirty percent of their pre-COVID sales. Yeah. Well, that's not enough to keep your doors open. No. Carol, did you have employees who lost their jobs? N no, because we were so small that we were not able to hire employees so we did it ourselves and i might add that the takeout 
the the uh, online um, not takeout, but the online ordering and delivery takes <laughs> basically thirty percent of yeah. the price of the food, which is your profit. So yeah. you're left with zero profit, and you still have your bills, you still have your lease, you still have your hydro and uh, whatever other uh, overhead. So and what will you do? What will you do now, Carol? Well, my husband has uh, decided to start a, a lawn care business instead. So you still you still have the entrepreneurial spirit, well, and you're going to continue as small does. business owners. Good for he you. Does. <laughs> he does. D- Dan, and we have about a minute and a half. Uh, Carol, thank you very much for your call. Please take care. All the very best to you. Thank you, Roy. Thanks for calling. Dan, The uh, when Carol talked about her friend who is on the hook for a year's rent, had a five-year lease, uh, business is gone, still on the hook for five years, that's part of what your, your, your concern is, isn't it? That's a significant part of your concern. It's a huge one. Look, the, the, gov- the federal government did jump in with the Canada Emergency Rent, uh, Commercial Rent Assistance Program, CECRA as it's known. It's, it's available to subsidize 75% of your rent bill for, Ju- uh, for April, May, and June if you have a 70% loss in sales or more. Uh, sounds like a good program, but the landlord is responsible for applying for it. And if your landlord says, you know what, I'm not willing to participate and I don't want to take a 25% cut in my rent, which is another piece of the program, then you as a small business owner get zero. And that's what we're trying to fix. So we've asked the federal government to extend the program beyond June because, of, as we noted earlier, 50% of businesses remain closed or partially closed. We also want the, the dollars to go directly to the tenant rather than through the landlord. We're hopeful that there's some changes coming. Uh, premiers have started to add uh, commercial eviction protection to the mix, which has been helpful for some, but so many others, like the caller mentioned, again, are slipping through the cracks of these programs. Yeah. And these aren't just names. These aren't just businesses that are closing. These are real people who have the entrepreneurial spirit and the caring and the daring to go into business who are being really dramatically and devastatingly harmed. Dan, always great talking to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for what you do with the CFIB. Anytime, right. Dan Kelly, President, CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, CFIB.ca. Dr. Nadia Alam is a family doctor. She's an anesthetist, a blogger, public speaker, and past president of the Ontario Medical Association. She is also a recipient of the Canadian Women in Medicine Inspiring Woman Physician Award for 2020. Now, two months ago, we spoke with Dr. Alam about her personal encounter with a 72-year-old COVID-19 patient. The patient had said, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't want to die on a machine, a ventilator. I want to look at the sky. So Dr. Alam, at the end of a long ICU shift, sat with the patient, and they looked at the sky. And that touched so many people. I still receive emails asking about uh, Dr. Alam and about that particular situation, that incident. So I, earlier in the week, saw an entry on Dr. Alam's blog in which she wrote about an encounter with an 87-year-old patient spending her birthday alone in a long-term care facility during the pandemic. And it really it touched me, and it touched so many people. It's on it's on many different um, addresses uh, on on Twitter. Dr. Alam is also tweeting about racism in Canadian society, and she writes as well about the healthcare system and pressure the doctors are under. Dr. Alam, it's always a pleasure to speak with you, an honor to speak with you, and I will never ever forget the first time I read the tweet about your encounter with the seventy-two-year-old patient. That just struck such a chord, and not just with me, with so many people, not only in Ontario, but across the country. 
Mr. Green, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, this pandemic has been life-changing for so many of us. And I have to say, in many ways, it's really clarified my perspective on what my role as a physician is, not just in encounters with my patients one-on-one, but in my community, in, in society. And I mean, it's just been life-changing. Yeah. There must have been scenarios like that, like the one that you encountered personally and you tweeted about, that repeated themselves over and over at particular times of the day for physicians involved in the very stressful duty of taking care of patients and making sure they themselves remain healthy, that you remain healthy, you have your own families to go home to as well, and and yet the patients require that human touch, that human interaction that you so generously gave to that to that 72-year-old patient. I will not ask you whether he recovered or not. Uh, it's just the fact that you did what you did is, is so outstanding. And and so I, I went to DrNadiaAlam.com, and I found a great deal of information about you, about healthcare, about being a doctor, and then I see your blog, and then I saw the story, COVID-19 Lucky. And I just want to quote from the... Uh, from the beginning of the uh, of your blog. 87 years old, her face is tired and lined, her voice hoarse, her hair in need of a trim, her shoulders slumped. I sit across her, from her in her small one-bedroom apartment. Like many people her age, she has a number of illnesses that she and I keep in careful balance. This allows her to stay out of hospital, to stay home, to stay functional. It's required intensive work from her and her family. It's required intensive work from me. And the quote from the 87-year-old woman. Do you know how lucky you are that you can just walk out that door? She looks lovingly, longingly rather, toward the door, her face sad. She lives in a retirement residence, which, like most seniors' residences and nursing homes, has been on lockdown to prevent outbreaks of COVID-19. It's my birthday, she tells me, with a wry smile flashing across her face. Yeah. Um, I, I, that just absolutely connects so viscerally, and I'm sure with so many Canadians, because we have been focused for the last number of months on the numbers of people, the numbers of elderly in long-term care facilities who have struggled, who continue to struggle, and the numbers who have died. I, I don't know how you do what you do, but tell us about this woman, please, beyond what I've just read. She's, she, she's a lovely woman. She became my patient when she moved to Georgetown about a year or two ago. We've gotten to know each other. We've seen each other through many ups and downs, like like women her age, right? Mm-hmm. She has a number of serious illnesses that we keep in a very fine balance. And our focus, we've had this discussion many, many times. Our focus is no longer on quantity of life, but on quality of life. And... It broke my heart when she said, do you know how lucky you are that you can walk out that door? And it struck me. She is absolutely right. Like, I can walk in and out of my clinic door. I can walk in and out of my house. She can't. She, she totally understands. She understands that a lot of these lockdown measures are to protect people like her, people who are vulnerable, people who are elderly, people who are disproportionately affected by this virus. 
while a large number of infections across Ontario have been um, in, in the middle-aged group, most of the deaths have been among the elderly. So we know this virus hits hard on people who have comorbidities, people who are older, people who are frailer. And so she, she understands that the lockdown is for her protection, but having had so many conversations about how she wants the rest of her life to play out, whether it's one month or whether it's another five years um, or another 10 years even, um, she's not happy with the choices that have been made for her. And she is, she is one of so many elderly. So many. So who who are in that particular position and I've I've had conversations with friends and I, and I've made the case that this this generation the greatest generation mm-hmm. many of them are on the on the younger end of the, the, the what we know is the greatest generation um, they're almost the forgotten generation or they became the forgotten generation we remember them on Remembrance Day we remember them at specific times we remember them when they had family birthdays but we now have out of evidence that they have almost become the forgotten generation. And there's another quote from, uh, from, from, your, from your blog piece where she says, I'm hardly a social butterfly, but I'm sick of staring at these four walls. She gestures to the pale blue walls. This is a slow death. And it is. I was talking to another patient, also elderly. Her husband has dementia, and she took care of him for years in her small one-bedroom apartment in Georgetown when she finally could no longer take care of him because he was becoming too agitated. Um, he was much, much bigger than her. He needed a lot of care. If he fell, she had no idea how to get him up. She, he ended up being admitted to a nursing home. Nursing homes have been in total lockdown. A lot of the caregivers, who are usually family members of nursing home residents, are not allowed to go into nursing homes to help their loved ones. Mm-hmm. He got sick during the pandemic. And it wasn't from COVID. It was a a COPD exacerbation. And she watched him struggle. She was allowed to do window visits, and that was it. So she is standing outside the window, and she's looking in at her beloved husband. They've been married for 60 years. Good, Leah. It's so hard to hear, and yet it is happening every single day. How do you do what you do? My job is to try and support her, but I feel kind of stuck watching this, right? Because it feels wrong. It feels wrong on so many levels. And I feel like there must be a better way, a way where we protect the vulnerable, but we don't sacrifice the quality of life because we honestly do not know how long they've got, right? And I've heard of so many people who have died during the pandemic for whatever reason, whether it's an expected death from cancer or whether it's an unexpected death from a COVID-19 infection, but they've died alone. And that's not the way anyone should go. Their families should be allowed to be there in some way. Yes. So, Dr. Allen, what now? What lies ahead? Is the proper planning being done? Are you as a family doctor, past president, of the Ontario Medical Association and an anesthetist, are you confident the right steps are being taken because we keep hearing about the threat of a second wave in the fall? I know that the government is 
trying to get expert advice. They are, um, and I do sympathize, they are struggling in environments where, much like everybody else, we, we don't have a roadmap for this. We've never seen a pandemic like this before. Um, we've never seen a virus behave like this before. So it is totally new ground. We are making up policy literally on the fly as we're going through, trying to figure out what works, what doesn't, relying on the experience and expertise of physicians and governments all around the world who are also dealing with the virus at the same time. Having done this once, my sincere hope is that somewhere in Queen's Park, somewhere in those offices, somewhere on Zoom, the government is again sitting down and saying, okay, you know, take a breath. We've gone through the first round. We've got a second wave coming. Very high likelihood of it. How, what is our response going to be? What do we know works? What do we know doesn't work? What is the sacrifice we're going to ask our citizens to bear, knowing that total lockdown has consequences? There is no doubt in my mind that while it's helped some, it's also harmed some. So we need to be very cautious about going back to a total lockdown. We, we need to make sure that we have a more nuanced approach, not just to protect the frail in our society, not, to protect the, not just to protect the vulnerable in our society, but just do a better job of taking care of everybody. Let's make the switch to the issue that the world is talking about. And we need to get beyond the talking stage and, and really get into a in meaningful cross-societal action. Dr. Allen, do you have a sense that... On the issue of race and racism, are you confident that meaningful and long-term meaningful change is beginning? I think if there was ever a time it was going to start, this is it. We have been watching as issues of racism have come and gone in the media for the past, oh gosh, how many knows decades, right? We've we've watched um, shootings, we've watched cases, uh, legal cases, we've watched all sorts of studies and data showing that racism exists. And, and I'm not talking about individual racism. I'm not talking about that interaction between one person and another person. Um, I'm talking about systemic racism. So racism that's baked into our political, our social, our legal structures that impact the way people of certain colors, people of certain backgrounds are treated by society at large, by our political systems at large, by our legal systems at large. So that kind of subtle nuance, subtle and nuanced racism that isn't as obvious as the individual racism, right? So we've, we've been watching this for decades. This is the first year that I have seen everybody so galvanized by this. And it's not just watching what's happening in the U.S. This is now a global discussion. Mm-hmm. So honestly, Mr. Green, I think if there's ever a time, this is it. This is the time when change might actually begin. You tweeted about the former Governor General, Mikhail John, saying she had been asked if she would be able to integrate into an all-white newsroom. I read that five or six times. Yep. And it was interesting to see the response to that. People focused immediately on her and and said, well, you know, that, that was the time back then. Things are different now and all of that. To be honest, I don't know that they're that different. They may be more, they may be less overt 
They may be more subtle, but we know that racism exists. We know that people, and we know this because there are studies and tests that people can take to understand perhaps their own biases that they may carry around, not because they're trying to be bad people, right? This is, this, these are hidden biases that we each carry around that makes us judge without really thinking too deeply one person versus another. Just quickly judge them, an off-the-cuff judgment, but that influences our behavior towards them. If she could have someone like her, someone who had, who rose to such stature, such influence, could have faced in, in, could have faced racism, like such overt racism while just going for job interviews. Can yeah. you imagine what happens to the regular Joe Blow who goes for a job? Right? I spent most of my a black person, yeah. indigenous people, all of that. Sorry, go I spent ahead. most of my adult life in newsrooms or around newsrooms. And I couldn't imagine anybody saying that, but at the same time, I'm not doubting what she said. And this is the this is the sort of this is the snapshot that makes us all think, and we have to think. What about healthcare? Systemic racism in healthcare. Do you encounter that? Is it there? Is it a fact of healthcare life? It is, and it's it can be as overt as I don't know if you remember this um, about. I think around 2017, there was a, a woman in Brampton, a, a mom, who was Caucasian. She brought her child to be seen at a walk-in clinic because the child was having an asthma attack or something similar to that, was having an asthma issue. And she refused to see the doctor who was at the walk-in clinic because the doctor was brown. I remember and that story. Someone videotaped it, and it went like wildfire, right? I do Everyone remember. started talking about it. I remember. So racism definitely exists in medicine, and it goes both ways. We know that patients can potentially bring preconceived judgments, right? Whether they're trying to be malicious or not, they can bring preconceived judgments to an encounter. I've had patients who've remarked that I have no accent. For example, I am Pakistani, I am brown, and I've grown up mostly in Canada. But I am an immigrant, and I've had patients who've been surprised by how I don't fit that image of what they expected me to be. Yeah, Dr. Allen, we oh, need no. to... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you and I need to have this conversation in more depth. Uh, we had two <laughs> issues to talk about today, but I'd like to speak with you about the race and racism issues specifically, and, and in the medical profession in the weeks to come. I thank you so much for joining us today. It's always great to talk to you, and... I'll never forget the story of you and the 72-year-old COVID patient. It's just oh. it's remarkable. Thank you so, so much for the time. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Mr. Green. I love the topics that you cover. Thank you. All the best to you. Thank you. Dr. Nadia Alam, and you'll find it at drnadiaalam.com is the webpage. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.